Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Sir Frederick, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Diana Arbaiza about her new book, The Spirit of Hispanism, Commerce, Culture, and Identity Across the Atlantic, 1875 to 1936. Diana, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ethan. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to talk to you about the book, but before we start talking about your book, Diane, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, well, uh, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Antwerp in Belgium. Um, I moved here uh, just a few years ago uh, because previously I worked and studied in the U.S., uh, where I uh, finished my master and my PhD in Hispanic Studies at the University of Illinois. Um, but um, before that, I should clarify that I'm not American. I'm, uh, I was born and raised in the Basque Country. Um, and I say that because uh, maybe growing there um, sparked my interest in the construction of nationalism, which is uh, definitely an interest that is behind the work um, I have been doing uh, and that I'm currently doing um, uh, about Spanish cultural production and the cultural politics uh, regarding Spain's uh, former colonies. Well, that transitions really nicely into my next question, which is how did you come to write this book in particular? Oh, well, um, so, well, uh, this book is supposed originally, originally um, emerging great part um, because um, I had kind of an eye-opening uh, experience when I moved to the States. And as I graduated uh, a student, I... I I kind of came to realize that I knew very little about Latin America, that I had basically received very little education about Latin American history or uh, literature or politics, um, despite um, the fact that uh, Latin America is uh, frequently invoked in, in, in Spanish public and political discourse. Um, so I, I was intrigued about um, post-colonial relations very soon, and uh, originally, I planned on analyzing travel narratives by Latin Americans visiting Spain. Um, and in compiling my corpus, I came across with uh, books written by Latin American authors um, 
who had visited Spain during the centennial of 1892. And in some of those texts, I found authors that uh, were talking of uh, common transatlantic Hispanic identity. Um, so this was... Um, uh, this was um, um, the, the, the corpus, uh, finally, of my dissertation. Um, but writing the dissertation was a very humbling experience because I was studying authors um, from several countries, and, and I came to realize that their Hispanic discourse was not only ideologically um, conditioned, but also uh, quite determined by, um, by, their, um, by their national context. Uh, so I felt that to expand my dissertation into a book, um, all those directions were uh, too many uh, to cover in my book. And I decided to focus on peninsular Hispanism. Um, I, I naturally tried to integrate the Latin American contributions and voices that um, were crucial for the development of Hispanism in Spain. Um, but I decided to concentrate on how um, Hispanism acted in Spain as a kind of a new imperialistic movement um, as a, a restitution for Spain's minor role in global politics. Um, uh, and in particularly, uh, reading the literature that has been done uh, on Hispanism, I was very interested about showing that it was not only imperial nostalgia, um, that it was not only a movement about recovering symbolic authority, uh, but that it was a movement uh, with economic interests and that those economic interests were not in isolation, but were mutually influencing cultural and economic discourses. Um, so that's basically it. <laughs> Long explanation. I, I really like what that intellectual genealogy reveals about Hispanism, which claims to speak to and speak about a an enormous cultural heritage shared by an enormous number of people. But but you're saying that the, the actual diversity within that movement is so immense that it's almost difficult to write about it in a singular sense, which is something you also bring up in this book. Yeah, I mean, I wrote in this book um, the, the enormous diversity uh, within uh, within a peninsular Hispanism. Uh, I, I sometimes felt, um, you know, it, it, there are like fine lines because you have, uh, on the one hand, uh, you need to homogenize and comportamentalize the story of analysis. And I was using... Um, some categories that uh, other scholar um, Sepulveda Muñoz, building on Frederick Pike, had developed, uh, you know, talking about the conservative, the liberal, and then the, the Hispanidad. Uh, but still, you know, within those categories, um, there is enormous variation and there is also cross-fertilization. Uh, uh, you know, they, they and, and there are like, um, you know, reverberations of some authors, you know, who are conservative, and you would expect that the liberal conservatives would never have said what the conservatives were arguing, and you find no, some connections. So there is enormous variation, and at the same time, continuities. And then when you expand it and you analyze, uh, you know, uh, the, the phenomenon of uh, Hispanism in Colombia or the Hispanism in in in, in Peru, um, they have you know complete uh, different variations as well. Um, so already it was quite challenging to to try to make justice to the to the diversity of uh, peninsular Hispanism. <clears throat> So your book traces the history of Hispanismo and its affiliated commercial projects in Spain from 1875 to 1936. 
Uh, could you briefly introduce our listeners first to Spain during this time period? I know that's a tricky question because there's a lot going on in Spain between 1875 and 1936. And also why you set this time period for the parameters of your book. Um, okay. Uh, so um, there is a tendency uh, to conceive um, Hispanism as a movement that was an aftermath of 1898. Uh, and it is true that the colonial loss of uh, 98 had a significant impact in Hispanism and contributed to its growth. Uh, but I also wanted to underscore that um, the Hispanist discourse and the transatlantic rapprochement uh, had already been developing for several decades that you really have to go back in history. Um, one of uh, the early books on the subject uh, by Mark Van Aken, uh, indeed studied an, an earlier stage of, of the movement, analyzing uh, transatlantic relations between the 1830s and the 1860s. So, you know, it, it was, you know, a, a, a process in development for a quite a long time. Um, but, but I chose 1875 because um, in Spain is the beginning of the uh, Bourbon Restoration, um, the La Restauración Borbónica. Uh, well, technically it starts in December of 1874, but um, let's, you know, basically start... Uh, practically in 1875. Um, and, and to me, this was a period that paved the way uh, for the interrelation between culture and economics. In Hispanism, um, the, the restoration was a period that was um, uh, yeah, of extreme political corruption, uh, but on the other hand, um, of great economic modernization. Uh, and, and during this period, uh, entrepreneurs, economists, and, and politicians became more aware that uh, cultural bonds could be capitalized to recover the Latin American markets. Um, and also during this period, uh, during the restoration, there are like some schools of economic thought that appear in Spain that were going to match quite well with the goals of cultural Hispanism um, and, and, and foster the, the initial union of, of cultural and economic interest among some groups. Um, and another uh, third aspect of, you know, the, the interesting part of these decades of the restoration and why my project is also that um, in the in the last decades of the 19th century, you have the consolidation of a professional literary field, the growth of the publishing industry, but also of uh, the piracy. And, and Spanish authors became much more interested in, in strengthening the bonds with Latin America, signing treaties of intellectual property, published in, uh, in American newspapers, um, so, um, I also, you know, uh, consider that we had to decentralize 1898, uh, for me it was very important, the 1892, um, I, I mentioned before that during my dissertation, I had studied, uh, specifically the, the celebrations of the fourth centennial of the Spanish colonization of the Americans, 1892, um, and these, um, the, the celebrations in Spain, uh, were the first occasion that gathered many Latin Americans and Spanish intellectuals after the independence of continental Latin America. And as you can imagine, uh, around the commemorations, there was like, uh, you know, identitarian discourses were thriving. Um, uh, so, so we have a solid production of Hispanic discourses around 1892, many by Latin American Creoles uh, who visited 
Spain at that time. And, and here we also have a beginning of what I call the um, Spanish cannibalization of Latin American cultural production. Uh, Latin American Creoles start talking as well about the great Hispanic family and, and Spanish authors found, you know, applauded this uh, discourse, found it very appealing because it was very convenient for them. And, and we'll see then traces of that in the early 20th, cent- 20th century when Spanish uh, intellectuals reappropriate Rodó and Rubén Darío, etc. And um, then uh, in the, the first decades of the 20th century, uh, what we find is a history of ups and downs in, in Hispanism. There is like some discourses that are repeated over and over again, proposals that never get materialized. Uh, and some Hispanists even have a feeling of bitter deja vu. Uh, there are several reasons for this, but I, I suggest that one important reason for this is um, the lack of cohesion uh, of the movement and the tensions that will um, slowly emerge between the cultural and the economic interests around the movement. And then I chose to finish in 1936 because obviously with the Spanish Civil War and the, the dictatorship, um, the, the cultural and economic life in Spain change and um but and also had the impression that the derivation of la hispanidad during the early francoism was the divergent uh phenomenon from what i studied um although this is basically another like book project so it it, it felt to me that it was like a natural end um although uh, i i do think and it's something that i pointed in the introduction and epilogue that we find rever- reverberations of the Hispanic discourse uh, even in contemporary uh, Spain. <clears throat> I, I completely agree with 1936 as an endpoint, and one of your chapters later on will will deal very nicely with that transition from the time period you're looking at to sort of the beginnings of Francoist Hispanidad. But, but before we get there, I want to start with your introduction, where you make the argument that many Spanish Hispanists sought to form deeper commercial ties with Spanish America, but that the contradictions within the movement, as well as the as well as political and economic challenges in, in Spain, uh, very much limited this project. Uh, first, though, we should probably define what you mean by Hispanism or, or what Hispanism is, especially if that's a new term for some of our listeners. So could you briefly introduce us to what is Hispanismo and explain why you believe it both saw and also sort of struggled with this commercial project? Uh-huh. Um, well, this is kind of the a nightmare question, I think, for everybody who studies Hispanism. Uh, I, I frequently say that um, Hispanism is a little bit like a floating signifier uh, because the movement subatomized uh, so much, so many groups, and each group produced uh, certain definitions of Hispanic identity, um, of what Hispanism was about. Um, uh, Frederick Pike, uh, who uh, wrote one of the foundational works on the subject of Hispanism, uh, said that due to this difficulty, it is maybe uh, better to talk to define or to describe Hispanism as the belief that Spanish and Latin Americans share a common identity and uh, based on the colonial past. And and I frequently refer to this definition, right, the, the, the belief of the share a common identity. And then when you go to the text, you see that generally uh, Hispanist authors argue that 
those traits that you know the Hispanic uh, had in common were language, um, cultural values. Uh, some even talk of blood and race, uh, which was also understood in in various ways. Um, and something that really intrigued me uh, was that many many Hispanists also insisted that one of the common traits. Uh, was having a common uh, anti-materialistic worldview that they oppose um, to uh, uh, the supposedly materialistic uh, ethos or character of the Anglo-Saxon. So I was fascinated with, you know, this insistence, this uh, description of the of the Hispanic as anti-materialistic, morally superior to, you know, the, the interest. Um, in in commerce that uh, Anglo-Saxons displayed uh, because at the same time I was uh, quite early on perceiving that there was like a very clear economic uh, aspect to this movement and very uh, very obvious economic interest around them um, so so then I, I I tried to focus precisely on how um, how from the emergence there was uh, the, 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 those uh, <clears throat> uh, those interests were hand in hand, and then little by little, as the Hispanic identity was uh, the, the idea of a Hispanic identity was becoming consolidated, and this narrative uh, grew and grew and grew and was more appropriated by some um, of the subgroups of the movement, um, became a point of friction and made more challenging precisely the coexistence of um, these different interests in the movement. <clears throat> you outlined these wonderful contradictions and, and well, contradiction is probably the best word for it, you know, this mixture of commercialism and idealism, and then simultaneously the, the fact that Spaniards often seem to think that Hispanism is centered in the peninsula, even though, like you've already said, this is an idea they're very much picking up from uh, Latin Americans. So there's some wonderful dissection of Hispanism that you do in the introduction, but I want to zone in on one particular line that I've just been thinking about nonstop since I've read it. On page eight in the introduction, you make a wonderful observation about the role that Hispanism played for Spaniards. You write, quote, Hispanism mer emerged as a restitution for the loss of continental Spanish America and as an anticipated reparation for what was foreseen at the time as an imminent loss of the remaining colonies in America and Asia. And I'm struck at this sort of post-colonial nostalgia and that it could develop before even the remaining colonies were lost, that this feeling preceded the actual disaster of 1898. So I'm definitely going to borrow this term of anticipated reparation as an analytic to describe imperial behavior and imaginations and nostalgia. Could you talk a little bit about this dynamic of feeling nostalgic for an imperial past before the empire's mm -hmm. even done. Uh, well, thank you, Ethan. Um, well, uh, I, I think that partly is that um, uh, once again, uh, we have uh, this date, 98, casting a shadow uh, over uh, everything. Um, but of course, indeed, Spain uh, had been struggling to maintain, um, you know, controlling the Caribbean in the Philippines for at least a couple of decades before 1898. So the loss of these regions was not that surprising, and especially if we consider, you know, uh, uh, Spain 
progressively losing uh, colonies, it has been a, a very, you know, a, 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 a process in development. Um, so, so we have that. And on the other hand, we have in, you know, in the late 1850s and 1860s, um, uh, O'Donnell, Leopold O'Donnell had uh, led a campaign of imperial prestige and, and had tried to recover um, even some territories in Latin America with quite disastrous consequences. Um, so I think that the war with Chile and, and Peru over the Chincha Islands or the intervention in Mexico with France made quite clear, uh, you know, for, for some Spaniards that the time for territorial and political domination uh, of continental Latin America was over, and combined with the, the political upheaval in in what were the remaining colonies in in America and the Pacific, uh, created that sense of anticipation and and ways uh, of you know trying to uh, reconceptualize how the relationship will have to be to maintain certain cultural authority and recover them, uh, at least commercially. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that the coincidence also of several circumstances during Restoration of Spain, uh, for me, m- make that Spain, although paradoxically at the time was considered a minor and outdated colonial power, uh, on the other hand, um, would attempt with Hispanism to create uh, what we could call today a form of cultural and economic neo-imperialism. <clears throat> you begin this conversation of Hispanism in your first chapter, Hispanism as Vindication, Spain as the Other in the Age of Commerce, in which you historicize the myth that Spaniards are and always have been bad at business. And then you analyze how Spaniards began rejecting or reevaluating or repurposing this myth to invent new notions of Spanish national character. Could you talk a little bit about this history and uh, of this myth that Spaniards are are bad at business and how Spaniards responded to it in the time period you studied? Yeah, um, well, as I think I've already said, um, since I began studying Hispanism, I was always uh, fascinated with uh, the relationship between culture and economics, the insistence on the anti-materialistic character of the Hispanic. And then simultaneously, um, working on this, and I'm reading contemporary news about the economic crisis that followed uh, 2008, and some press began to use the horrible acronym of PIGS uh, to talk about Southern European countries and and say things, um, you know, say that, that these countries like, uh, I mean, PIGS, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain, um, and say that that these countries like a you know a culture of effort and work ethic that lack entrepreneurial spirit. So I was kind of fascinated and horrified because it really sounded a lot like some things that I was reading. So I became interested in tracing the origins of these stereotypes, as I expected that this myth of um, Hispanic um, anti-materialism could be a compensatory narrative or a counter-narrative um, to this other construction. Uh, so yeah, so in this in this chapter, uh, what I wanted was to trace uh, the the no depiction the construction of of Spain in in Western modernity as 
and other inadequate for the age of commerce and how this image was explained by different disciplines and school of thought uh, from uh, from classical liberalism to 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 uh, to sociology with Bever um, later in the 19th century, um, and and this uh, also expanded to the imagination of Spanish colonialism because it was often uh, Spain was often described as a non-modern, non-commercial model of colonialism. So then I suggest that um, that that fueled by by these portraits. Around the 1870s, um, Spanish intellectuals are going to um, uh, reinterpret this image and, and embrace this image and, and claim that Spanish colonialism was actually morally superior to commercial models, uh, which uh, you know uh, uh, for these authors are exemplified uh, by the British or the Dutch colonialism, and, and eventually um, uh, this uh, redefinition of Spanish colonialism. I, I argue, uh, would also contribute to the development of the notion of uh, Hispanic idealism. <clears throat> this notion of Hispanic uh, idealism connects very nicely into your second chapter called The Emergence of Hispanic Idealism, 1892 to 1900, and it follows what you just described as Hispanic idealism. Could you tell us a little bit more about what is Hispanic idealism and then what its trajectory was at the end of the 19th century? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I actually borrow the term uh, from a discourse that the Uruguayan poet uh, Juan Zorrilla de San Martín uh, gave um, in Spain uh, when when he was attending the 1892 celebrations, and um, of course this uh, this. Um, uh, I, notion did not come from a vacuum, as I have explained, uh, but I think that he gave a very powerful uh, discourse, a term that was you know, really, really praised by Spanish press, by Spanish intellectuals. Ferrilla um, de uh, San Martín was proposing that you know, Spanish and Latin Americans uh, served, as I have mentioned, uh, a worldview that distinguished them from, you know, other uh, other parts of the world, particularly Anglo-Saxons, in the sense that they had um, an idealistic, uh, superior in that sense, uh, worldview than the Anglo-Saxons who uh, were close to materialism, um, and um, uh, it was. Uh, also a, a, a way to position themselves as, um, you know, we are not, it's not that we are not modern as uh, they attacked us, but we chose to be different. Um, and uh, what was uh, mind-blowing for me is that he was giving, like, this talk uh, just, you know, a few uh, streets away from where there were like stores that had all this um, memorabilia around the centennial of 1892 with many Spanish authors claiming for uh, for treaties on intellectual property, uh, with congresses talking about commercial arrangements. Um, So it it is a powerful narrative that insisted and insisted, uh, that intellectuals insisted on and insisted on while at the same time we have like 
uh, material reality around them that contradicted uh, quite clearly um, the discourse. Um, yet uh, it was, you know, uh, basically they were trying to make what had been described as a liability, they were trying to make it a virtue and it really um, resonated. Um, then by the 1900s, um, Jose Rodó published Ariel and Ariel really becomes uh, one of the most important works for Peninsular Hispanism. Uh, they also reinterpret the work. Uh, Jose Rodó is not you know, as a straightforward Hispanist as many Spanish intellectuals try to depict him. Um, but it is a work that goes in that line of creating an opposition uh, against Anglo-Saxons and describing them as closer to, uh, you know, a materialistic uh, view. Um, and, yeah, it will be um, a, a powerful image and notion that would resonate for for decades. <clears throat> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, as much as Hispanic idealism was a powerful image, this chapter is also full of powerful images, one of which covers the, uh, forms the cover of the book. And I have to bring this up, this proposed monument to discovery that was supposed to appear at the 1892 commemoration of the discovery of the Americas. Uh, could you describe this project, um, this massive globe building that was supposed to be built in Chicago. Could you describe this project a little bit and why it never came to fruition? Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, this uh, monument, um, uh, which is like a, a huge uh, globe uh, with a, a Spanish caravel on top, um, was uh, designed for the celebrations of 1898 um, uh, by um, a Basque engineer, Alberto de Palacio, uh, who was um, a student of Eiffel, and he um, he was quite innovative, and he was responsible of um, many important buildings in late 19th century Spain, um, very uh, famous for a, a, a very uh, very famous for a transporter bridge very close to my hometown, the, the first one of its kind, um, el puente de uh, el puente colgante. Um, so anyway, he was chosen precisely because uh, he he would, he uh, embodied someone who could both represent uh, modernity and glorify the Spanish colonialism in America. Um, and there was some talk about making this building uh, first for the celebrations in Spain, but pretty soon it was disregarded because um, it was impossible because of the budget. There were like many many issues around the lack of budget. Um, around the centennials of 1892 in Spain. Uh, then there was some conversation about um, uh, of making this building to represent Spain in the Chicago exhibition of 1893, which was, um, was uh, uh, also a, a, an exhibition tied to the commemoration of the uh, of the uh, of the so-called uh, discovery of America. 
um, and and the Chicago uh, celebrations was uh, were uh, a rival celebration for the the Spanish um, centennial. Uh, so some imagine that you know this uh, this building could precisely you know represent Spain with glory, but once again no budget. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't remember the details. Um, I, I think I didn't include them in the book at the end. But the size of the monument was grotesque, was huge, um, and and to me the story was fascinating. And I suggested as the um, as the book cover because um, uh, for me it was uh, very symbolic of the contrast between uh, the aspirations that many Hispanists uh, had in the movement, and then how the movement evolved and how little um, many uh, uh, how, how little they accomplished <laughs> in terms of you know material outcomes <clears throat> I, I think it was a perfect choice for a book cover because I, I just love that the both the designer for this and some of the original project planners for this building um, had to be told that it couldn't be done that somewhere they somehow they thought it could that it could have been done and it was a surprise mm-hmm. to them um, which I think tells you a lot about uh, Hispanism in Spain mm-hmm. at the time. Um, your third chapter, moving on, is called Complicated Harmonies, Economic and Cultural Initiatives in Progressive Hispanism. And it looks at a rather unique iteration of Hispanism. When, when I think of Hispanism, especially in the Mexican context where I look at it, I tend to associate it only with mm-hmm. conservative politics. And so it was interesting here to look at progressives. Uh, in Spain using Hispanism as a discourse and as a political project, especially because for them, commercialism was not really a dirty word per se, in the same way it was for some other Hispanist um, discourses that existed. Could you tell us a little bit about these progressive Hispanists? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I, uh, you know, I, I borrow uh, the terms liberal and progressive. Uh, Pike especially uses used uh, uh, liberals, and then Sepulveda Muñoz uh, used progressive or liberal branch of Hispanism. And indeed, it's, it's important to distinguish uh, within, you know, the many groups that, you know, finally composed this movement. But you had, like, there is definitely a big uh, distinction between the, the conservative and the and the liberals, while at the same time they have many points in common, of course. Um, but anyway, in in, uh, in this chapter, um, I was very interested in the, in particular in this group of the progressive Hispanism. I saw that there was um, uh, at the beginning very harmonious interrelation of culture and economics, uh, and then I I began to I wanted to trace how it started so harmonious, and then how. It progressively dissolved. Um, so some of the most important figures of this uh, branch were uh, liberal intellectuals such as um, eh, Rafael Altamira, uh, Rafael Mario de Labra, Posadas, Piernas Hurtado. Um, well, many many uh, intellectuals who were uh, close to the Krausist movement, um, and and this relation uh, with the Krausist is commonly known. Uh, but much less studied and less well known is the approach um, to economics derived by Krausism, uh, which was a philosophical school. And and then I, uh, to me, uh, it was quite revealing uh, to to know about this school of economics uh, that came from Krausism, because I understood 
how this vision of economics had influenced these Hispanists and had led them to see that cultural and economics were interrelated spheres and that uh, the cultural and commercial interest in Hispanism could go hand in hand. Um, so I, I explore how Altamira was pretty optimistic about this relationship in the early 20th century. Um, he was in touch with entrepreneurs and, and other groups uh, and other Hispanist groups um, that were much more focused on commercial relations. Uh, but progressively, um, this vision of harmonizing agendas uh, became much more complicated because, uh, well, some groups accused Altamira of practicing a lyrical Hispanism with no results. Um, then he was also accused uh, of practicing economic new imperialism. Um, then of not being different enough from a conservative reactionary branch. So eventually, um, uh, there were like different figures. I studied Luis Dolariaga, an economist who was very close to Altamira and wrote extensively about the Hispanist bond. Um, but progressively, um, the, the, this liberal Hispanism kind of diluted it uh, became very diluted. Um, Sepulveda Muñoz rightly argues that is in part because of the prominence that uh, the ultra-reactionary um, derivation of Hispanism, La Hispanidad, would acquire uh, in the 1930s, and also because um, uh, Primo de Rivera would cannibalize part of the agenda of the liberal Hispanists, but I also think that it is very important to take into account how that um, interrelationship between culture and economics was quite essential and, you know, uh, quite uh, intrinsic to how liberal Hispanists had imagined the movement at the beginning, and then it became practically impossible <clears throat> to, to sustain uh, their vision uh, like that. Your fourth chapter is a shift in that you move to the sort of Hispanidad that, that starts to overtake Hispanismo, like you just described. Um, but it's also a shift in that you're following a single person. Uh, your, your fourth chapter is called Romero de Maestu and the Search for a Hispanic Economic Ideology. And you study this titular character um, de Maestu's thinking over time as he shifts everything from a sort of liberal to a sort of socialist until he becomes very associated with um, what, what eventually would, we would call Francoism. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about Maestu and his search for a Hispanic alternative to mm -hmm. capitalism? Um, yeah, so so you are right that in the other chapters I present multiple authors, but in this one I focus on on just my my two. Um, I mean, I did it. Uh, I did it not only because my two is by far uh, the most important figure of the of of la Hispanidad. Uh, no, um, but but I also found that. Unlike other authors who talk about La Hispanidad, in the work of Defensa de la Hispanidad by Maestu, uh, there was like an underlying uh, latent interest in economics that it was a very personal preoccupation of Maestu. And of course, you know, I was interested in that relationship, but that was 
um, the 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 subject of of, my, of the whole project. I wanted to see that, and I didn't see it in other authors as clearly. But in Maestu, for me, was very latent. Um, Maestu was a very um, a mercurial character uh, who definitely underwent extreme changes, as you have mentioned, from socialism to you know becoming an economic liberal. Uh, then he abhorred. Uh, this in, in defensa de la hispanidad. Um, yeah, so he, he underwent uh, radical changes. Um, but what I argue in my book is that um, I think that he, there is, an, there is an interest in providing an economic guide to the, to the Hispanic nations. Um, and, and this uh, obsession with providing this economic guide is kind of a thread that joins all his writings. Um, so normally when Maestu is associated with Hispanism, he's generally um, associated with it because of his work about la Hispanidad in the 1930s. Uh, but he wrote many, many articles in the 1920s that should be fully considered part of his Hispanist production even though uh, his discourse is completely different from his arguments about la hispanidad. Um, and, and in those articles in the, in the 1920s, he's talking about the Hispanic nation. So he's considering them as a cultural unity, uh, and he's trying to provide an economic ethos for them. Uh, so then in defensa in the 30s, he changed his liberal views, um, but... I think that some of the same concerns are there. The opposition with the Anglo-Saxon and the depiction of them um, as, you know, a, a different, uh, uh, as having a different economic worldview are there. And I think he was timidly trying to provide another economic path, even though um, he did not have time to fully develop it. But I think he's playing with the idea of la hispanidad and um, uh, la hispanidad as a as a third path and infusing commerce with the spirit of Trento. Um, so I think he, you know, the the economic aspect was not totally away from his mind, and and he was working on it. One of one of many uh, possible third paths that people were seeking out in that exactly. time period. Your fifth and final chapter, uh, Commercial Hispanism, Marketing Spiritual Capital, follows what you call these Hispanists from the periphery, especially in Bilbao and Barcelona. And this chapter covers several topics from their views on commerce, from publishing rights and the role of regionalism and even Spanish immigration to the New World. So would you be willing to introduce Hispanism on the peripheries of Spain and how it developed in these areas in difference from one another and from difference to the more Castilian uh, sort of Hispanisms that you've been talking mm-hmm. so far? Um, well, um, uh, Barcelona and Bilbao uh, were two very important uh, economic centers in the late 19th century, uh, the, the two great economic centers. And uh, for different reasons, um, actually for quite opposite these uh, reasons, uh, we're quite involved in strengthening links with Latin America after 1898. Um, for, for Catalonia, the colonial laws um, affected them quite negatively. Uh, so the entrepreneurial society was really trying to reestablish as many links as possible 
and as fast as possible. And for the Basque, it was the opposite. <laughs> the opposite. Um, they received many Indianos um, and a great influx of repatriated capital after the colonial loss. And uh, that uh, that capital, they invested it in, in new banks and new companies um, that many of these Indianos were directed and because they had just, you know, returned from decades in America, they were naturally looking and thinking about, you know, now making um, uh, m- making uh, business, you know, with with, uh, with Latin, the Latin American countries. Uh, so, for two different reasons, emerged a natural interest in developing a commercial type of rapprochement uh, with, with, with Latin American nations in those, in those two regions. Um, then uh, what is very interesting is that in, in these um, two areas, uh, you, uh, you find, uh, you know, that in the late 19th century, there is like this um, uh, rival uh, nationalism and how um, consistently they are kept a little bit outside of the imagination of Spanish national identity, which is generally um, depicted as quite um, focused. Now, the center of, of Spanish nationalism is Castile, and Barcelona and Bilbao became, you know, become peripheries. And 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 some uh, like Ruben Darío, I, I actually quote um, uh, uh, Ruben Darío at the beginning of this chapter, even argues, okay, Spain cannot forget that its center is Castile, and while it's good to have you know Barcelona and Bilbao as economic motors, so uh, interestingly, um, the 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 fact that they were like economically. Uh, you know, quite modern uh, was also uh, um, a part that differentiated them from the imagination of uh, Spanish uh, national identity centered around Castilian um, uh, identity. Um, and then, uh, so so I analyzed how the Hispanist movement developed in these two regions, quite focused on on creating these commercial networks, although um, the Hispanist um, of Catalonia and the Basque Country uh, had initially many links with some of the liberal Hispanists that I studied in Chapter 3. They actually uh, were in conversation with groups in Madrid, um, but uh, rivalries uh, with the groups in Madrid uh, soon emerged, and um, basically Catalonians failed in uh, becoming like kind of the the, the leaders of the Hispan the Hispanist movement uh, within Spain. Um, yet they continued, uh, especially Catalonians, uh, a very uh, very active uh, relationship with Latin America, a very successful, uh, uh, very successful um, uh, entrance into the Latin American market, um, and um, uh, and so I study uh, first of all how they positioned themselves, how they justified their activities, uh, which type of language they were using, uh, uh, which schools of political economy were invoking to um, uh, 
to to legitimize uh, uh, their um, their you know their Hispanist vision in front of these other groups. Um, and I chose uh, to focus on, uh, on 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 two phenomenons that I found quite fascinating: uh, all the discourse and also the um, all the discourse about the book commerce that um, that was developing at the time period. Um, the book commerce uh, was uh, for commercial Hispanists um, a very um, uh, it, it was quite central uh, it because on the one hand there was like enormous business uh, to make uh, and secondly it was also a type of uh, commerce that perfectly legitimized their intervention because the 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 book was uh, seen as a means to keep on strengthening cultural bonds and uh, keep on nurturing uh, that relationship. Um, so actually, Catalonians were very successful uh, with um, their book industry uh, and their book commerce. Um, the Basque never managed to develop as such. Um, and then um, as uh, I wanted to offer like the counter... <laughs> Um, a counterexample of um, a topic that uh, was quite central in the discourses of these um, Hispanists, but uh, unlike the book, was um, quite controversial for them, which was the emigration. Um, for um, commercial Hispanists, uh, immigration was a phenomenon uh, that they saw quite positively. Um, they um, included quite often reviews of immigrants in these areas in their publications uh, because they believe that uh, having a solid um, influx of immigrants uh, in in Latin America could help uh, to um, strengthen their markets there, that uh, those uh, immigrants were going to... um, um, we're going to consume and also advertise the Spanish products in the Latin American republics. However, the Spanish press and the Spanish public opinion was quite divided around the massive Spanish immigration uh, that moved to Latin America in um, well from the 1880s to the First uh, World War. Um, so there were some people that considered that emigration to Latin America was a drain that Spain needed to concentrate uh, its efforts within Spain, um, and then um, uh, and then it was quite paradoxical that um, that they were talking about the social regeneration uh, in a figure that. Uh, normally, in a figure, the immigrants that normally had very uh, obvious economic interest when they were emigrating. So um, it was, uh, you know, unlike the book, which was, uh, you know, the the perfect um, um, uh, the perfect um, uh, commodity to invoke to justify their action. Uh, immigration became a pretty thorny question for commercial Hispanists. 
I very much enjoyed reading this last section as a person who looks at it in Latin American history because there's a similar sort of duality where some Latin American governments and, and citizens think, oh, there's a great influx of capital or of, of racial purification, of whitening of the country. And there are others that are afraid of the political consequences of um, what they perceive as, as colonial foreigners. Um, so it's interesting to see this also from the Spanish perspective. And I'm sure people who study Latin America during this time period would appreciate seeing how it was viewed back in the peninsula yeah, as well. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic because it was really a massive, massive immigration. <laughs> yeah. So your book ends with a very interesting afterword, which you've already hinted at, where you connect this to politics and economics and discourse in Spain in the last 50 years, especially um, in relation to the Barcelona Olympics and other trade agreements. But I'll leave those, I'll leave that right now as a treat for the readers, but I do recommend people read that afterward. It's very interesting. Instead, I would love to hear from you what you're either working on now or plan to work on next. Uh -huh. um, well, um, uh, my, my current project uh, is about um, Spanish cultural politics and economic interest in Africa uh, from the second half of the 19th century to the first half of the 20th century. Um, um, I imagine that this sounds very distant from um, this uh, book, from the spirit of Hispanism, but I actually began thinking about it um, because I kept on finding references about Africa when I was researching for, for this book. Um, uh, so, so when I when I was researching for the spirit, I mean, I, I noticed that um, the Spanish possessions in Africa raised the interest of uh, some Hispanists um, that you know were considered like multiple regions at the same time, um, but other ones, uh, on the other hand, considered that it would be a rival to the attention that Spain ought to pay to Latin America. Uh, that it's concentrate. So I'm still doing a lot of archival research, but I'm, I'm interested in seeing how um, Spanish textual uh, production presented Spanish colonialism in this region and uh, how they, they negotiated with the economic exploitation uh, that, that took place uh, in, in the possessions, in the colonial possessions in Africa. Um, and, um, and then how... Um, as cultural politics develop in the 20th century, to what extent uh, the what has been the peninsular discourse about Latin America was reproduced or was changed and transformed in presenting the African colonies and negotiating and, and dealing with them. <clears throat> well, I'm absolutely positive we at the New Books Network would love to talk to you about that project as it as it develops, uh, especially given the number of crises and. Uh, and highly charged moments in, in Spanish history of colonialism in Africa during the same time period that you've outlined here. Um, so I'd be very interested to hear how people made sense of uh, those crises and major events in the mm -hmm. colonies. Yeah, I mean, it's still, you know, a lot of archival work. So I'm still in the process, but hopefully in a few years from now. <laughs> well, I'm excited to learn more about it. And thank you so much for your time and for an excellent book, Diana. Thank you Diana. very much, Ipana. Thank you for such a for the invitation and for such a careful reading. <laughs>